The reading uh, today is uh, from Yuval Noah Harari from a book called Sapiens. Uh, our Big Read book group is going to read this book this year. It's a great book for humanists uh, to read. Uh, I'm teaching it in a, I'm teaching an introduction to humanism class at Meadville Lombard Theological School this year and using that book. It's, uh, I really highly recommend it. Um, and it's also a book on tape, which you can listen to. Uh, this is a little reading from that book. Scholars once proclaimed that the agricultural revolution was a great leap forward for humanity. They told a tale of progress fueled by human brain power. Evolution gradually produced ever more intelligent people. Eventually, people were so smart that they were able to decipher nature's secrets, enabling them to tame sheep and cultivate wheat. As soon as this happened, they cheerfully abandoned the grueling, dangerous, and often Spartan life of hunter-gatherers, settling down to enjoy the pleasant, satiated life of farmers. That tale is a fantasy. There is no evidence that people become more intelligent over time. Foragers knew the secrets of nature long before the agricultural revolution, since their survival depended on an intimate knowledge of the animals they hunted and the plants they gathered. Rather than heralding a new era of easy living, the agricultural revolution left farmers with lives generally more difficult and less satisfying than those of foragers. Hunter-gatherers spent their time in more stimulating and varied ways and were less in danger of starvation and disease. The agricultural revolution certainly enlarged the sum total of food at the disposal of humankind, but the extra food did not translate into a better diet or more leisure time. Rather, it translated into a population explosion and pampered elites. The average farmer worked harder than the average forager and got a worse diet in return. The agricultural revolution was history's biggest fraud. The body of Homo sapiens had not evolved for farming. It was, not, it was adapted to climbing apple trees and running after gazelles, not to clearing rocks and carrying water buckets. Human spines, knees, necks, and arches paid the price. Studies of ancient skeletons indicate that the transition to agriculture brought about a plethora of ailments like slipped discs, arthritis, and hernias. Moreover, the new agricultural tasks demanded so much time that people were forced to settle permanently next to their wheat fields. This completely changed their life. We did not domesticate wheat, it domesticated us. The word domesticate comes from the Latin domus, which means house. Who's the one living in the house? It's not the wheat. Labor Day. In 1935, a U.S. government truck, part of a New Deal program called Relief, pulled up at my grandfather's house. Now, that house was a two-room sharecropper shack, and 16 people were living inside. The family was starving to death. It wasn't malnutrition. It was starvation. The government truck was distributing surplus food, which on that particular visit consisted of a gallon glass jar of mustard. That was it. My father was 11 years old at that time, 
And he and his siblings thus became the first generation of U.S. children raised on what came to be known as welfare. That first glimmer of government help proved to be a harbinger of things to come. Now, I come from a long line of poor people, part of what's known as the incorrigible poor or the long-term poor. Now, most of my cousins, and I had 64 cousins at one time, first cousins, most of my cousins, their children, their children's children, and now their children's children's children have never managed to get off government assistance in all those years. Back to the mustard. These were farmers who traveled by horse, and this was long before television had been invented. No one in the family had ever seen mustard. They thought, oh, it's what rich folks eat. So they ate it. It's all they had, though a gallon of mustard doesn't go all that far, which split between 16 people. It made them incredibly ill. So then they decided the government was out to poison poor people. Now, I suspect if that story had made it into the newspapers, some rich folks would have responded, hey, why are those poor people so stupid? Why didn't they just put it on their, their uh, roast beef sandwiches, right? Well, that's the story of my family. We are a little bit of a sociological experiment. My father was one of 11 children. Of that group, eventually three escaped poverty. Now, how did those three escape? Well, my father was able to join a labor union, and two of his sisters married men who were able to join labor unions. The rest of those kids lived and died in the poverty that they were born into. Their children, my first cousins, and as I said, I had 64 of them at one time before death started weeding them out. We poor folk don't live as long as, as other folks. My cousins, for the most part, remained in the welfare system. I was, and four generations later, as far as I know, I still am, the only one of the descendants of that sharecropper shack to ever have gotten a college degree. Now, I want to quickly point out that my father didn't try harder than any of his siblings, uh, and I didn't work any harder than any of my cousins. Matter of fact, most of them had two or three jobs. It was just lucky. It's pure luck. And on this Labor Day, it's good to remember that the labor union is one of the few anti-poverty programs in the U.S. history that has actually worked. The rest of it is kind of handing out mustard to people. Well, you know, okay, why talk about poverty when you can talk about the good old days? After all, I am a child of the golden age of U.S. labor unions. I'm part of the great in that make America great again. My father was a member of the Boilermakers Union, officially titled the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, Iron Ship Builders, Blacksmiths, Foragers, and Helpers. And yeah, that's where the name of the drink comes from. Those guys were a tough bunch. One Boilermaker saying from the time went, if you know you're coming home with all your fingers and toes, you're not going to work. They were tough. Uh, and, you know, the fact is, if you handle red-hot steel, eight hours a day, sometimes 12 hours a day, six and seven days a week, you're going to get hurt. 
often. And some of my first memories uh, are the bitter cold when my father marched on the picket line during strikes. Every year, mom and dad would start getting worried along about November because the union contract had to be renegotiated before December 31st. And my parents prayed there wouldn't be a strike that year, and generally there was, and when that happened, the paychecks stopped. There was a strike fund that paid those who walked the picket line. So, my dad walked the picket line. And my father made extra money tearing down old fences and old houses that provided the firewood to put in 55-gallon drums out on the streets for the picketers to stay warm. And I really loved tearing down houses when I was a kid. There's nothing quite as satisfying as slamming a, a crowbar through a wall and ripping its guts out. And, and this was long before fiberglass insulation, which I hate. Sometimes the strikes lasted for weeks, sometimes months, and one of them lasted for two years. Now, yeah, yeah it can get long. I remember my mom ripping open a 10-pound bag, uh, bag of potatoes on Sunday nights, and she would count them out on the counter, uh, putting them into seven groups so that we would have something to eat for the entire week. Now, that was the 1960s, and that was the golden age of American labor unions. And my father was indeed fortunate to have a union job, a job that provided a living wage, some measure of safety and working conditions, health insurance that covered those constant injuries, provision for overtime pay, and a pension plan, though that went away when the Reagan administration began eliminating the New Deal era labor laws. Now, thanks to a union, unlike my dad when he was a kid, I never actually went hungry. I had malnutrition, not starvation. And again, parenthetically, when you're born poor, you carry that all your life. I have a swayed back and bent legs due to my malnutrition as a kid. And it turns out that cornbread made out of, with water and eating uh, fried potatoes and lard every day for every meal is not all that nutritious for you. And, uh, you know, it's really a bad idea to be born poor. But here's the thing. When I was born, 25% of the U.S. population lived in poverty. 25%. By the time I was 10 years old, 15% of Americans lived in poverty. Then, the U.S. poverty rate and the rise in U.S. worker incomes froze, and it hasn't changed since. It's still at 15% poverty rate. And the fact is that the $2.50 an hour that my dad made on a union contract back in 1965 has more buying power than the average $28 an hour that the steel makers work, uh, get nowadays. So I really did live in the golden age of American labor when poor people could become not poor. We were still working class but we weren't incorrigibly poor. I should again parenthetically mention something about the American class system. If you give poor people a fair wage, they become not poor, but they don't become middle class. 
The American class system simply doesn't work that way. Politicians would like you to think it works that way, but it doesn't. Working class people simply have different manners and mores. It's about sociology, it's not about your finances. I grew up working class, and I was taught the manners and the mores of the working class, not the middle class, which my parents considered not all that desirable. I can pass for middle class, but I don't think like middle class folks do. Middle classness isn't of interest to me, although money is. The golden age and the great in making America great again. Sometimes we forget that those unions in those days were mostly white male institutions. For the most part, the unions in those days addressed only one American disease, the oppression of working class white males. Racism and sexism had to wait. The bread and roses strike didn't work out for them. My father was, by the way, drafted into the Army during the Second World War. When he was drafted, he was 22 years old, and he was in sixth grade. He was semi-literate, but he was a white male war veteran, and therefore privileged. My mom's case was different. My mom dropped out of high school as soon as she turned 16. Nowadays, she would be diagnosed with a learning disability and maybe autism. I don't know. Uh, she never really learned to read. Another bit of false nostalgia is the efficiency of those one-room country schools that both of my parents went to. They weren't all that good. While my father was working union jobs, my mother also worked in factories. She was a good country girl, and she was good at sewing. So she worked in upholstering factories and at various clothing factories, which did exist here in the US in a good number back in those days. Her work was all non-union. All the bosses were men, all the workers were women. My mother, like my father, theoretically worked eight hours a day and would get overtime, but in actuality, my mom worked on a quota system. So she had to finish a quota before she finished work, no matter how long that took. I remember she worked for a factory for a while making Aero brand men's shirts. Her quota to sew was a hundred dozen shirts a day. That's, that's how they said a hundred dozen, which I suppose a hundred dozen sounds better than 1,200 shirts. It was an assembly line. Uh, Mom sewed the collars. She was a particularly good sewer. A hundred dozen a day collars. That pace meant no lunch breaks, no water breaks, bathroom breaks only in extreme circumstances, and the only time those women got to work uh, on rest on com uh, company time was when they sewed their fingers into the machines, which happened fairly often because they were so tired and working so fast, and uh, my mother's left hand was just all butchered up. For some reason, it was always her left hand. I should also mention for you younger folks that factories were not air-conditioned in those days, so every shop was a sweatshop, especially if you lived in the American South, where we lived. My mother got no overtime pay, no health benefits, no pension, and the mere mention 
of labor organizing would get you fired. The average now is about 20,000 people per year get fired for mentioning uh, joining a labor union on their work, by the way. Bending over sewing machines all day eventually took its toll on my mother's back, and so she had to give up the better paying sewing work and became what she called a washerwoman, doing laundry and mopping floors in various nursing homes to finish out her career. In her later years, my mother lived in constant pain, barely able to walk due to the damage to her spine from those jobs, and she never got any disability payments. And by the way, the perpetrator of that, the Arrow Shirt Factory, has moved to Myanmar, where you don't talk about labor union organizing. And so the damage goes on today in another generation and another generation. Now, I hope that you don't hear me saying poor, poor, pitiful me up here. Both of my parents considered themselves extremely fortunate because they had the example of our family. And I have always considered myself extremely, extremely fortunate because I have the example of my family. My parents worked in the golden age of American labor. Two people born into abject poverty had food on the table, they bought a car, had a house, the American dream. And I came of age at a time when you could work a base wage job and work your way through college. So that's how I got out. So I'm not saying, you know, I had it bad. Uh, as a matter of fact, now is the bad old days. What my parents and I accomplished is no longer possible for most people. The good old days weren't all that good, as I hope you hear, but they're better than now. In terms of the United States, I should mention quickly that Minneapolis is a worker's paradise. Yes, the DFL party has worked on workers' rights here, not so in most of the United States. The OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, is a 36-nation organization designed to aid members in making informed policy decisions concerning their economies. It's based in Paris, France. One part of the economy, of course, is working conditions of your workers, and the OECD rates member nations, all 36 of them, in terms of working conditions of its workers. The United States today ranks second to the bottom. We tie with Malaysia. For comparison, the OECD rates Brazil in terms of worker conditions at 4.1 on their scale. India gets a 2.5 on their scale. The United States ties with Malaysia at 0.3 on their scale. Now remember, the, this Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development is not some crazed Marxist underground cell throwing bombs. It's an organization of the world's top economies designed to foster market capitalism. It's pretty clear that we're wasting our money as American citizens on that particular uh, group because it doesn't sound to me like we have any intention of doing what the rest of the nations are doing. We don't have to because labor unions in the US are weak. Less than 10% of American workers now belong to labor unions. Why are we so low on that scale? Well, workers here can't afford health insurance. Workers here can't afford childcare. 
Workers here seldom get sick pay. Workers here almost have, never have actual job security. And the list goes on and on and on. 37 million working Americans live below the poverty line. And remember what I said earlier, poor people stop being poor when you give them a fair wage. The wages for most Americans stopped growing in 1973 and has now gone down ever since, unlike the incomes of the richest 5% of Americans. And so, in this country, wage inequality grows and grows and grows. Well, okay, where's the hope? I hold on to the words of Chicago poet Gwendolyn Brooks that are in your order of service this morning. It's, she said, live not for battles won, live not for the end of the song, live in the along. Things can change. Not by making America great again like it was in 1960 because it wasn't great, but things can be changed by looking at simple economics. Poor people stop being poor when instead of a gallon of mustard, you give them a living wage. You pay them fairly for the work done. The restaurant workers, the hotel workers, childcare workers, agricultural workers, data processing workers, you pay them fairly and they won't be poor. There's a whole lot of labor going on in this country done by a whole lot of people who are struggling. A humane economy is possible. The first step is realizing that the one we have now is not humane. 